Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Cato Institute. My name is Tim Lynch and I'm the director of Cato's Project on Criminal Justice. Today we want to return to drug policy. It was 40 years ago this week that President Nixon uh, declared that the drug situation was a national emergency that threatened to uh, destroy our entire country. Um, he said that narcotics were public enemy number one, and he asked Congress to allocate $100 million to tackle the problem. Now, looking back, $100 million, I mean, that, that sounds like uh, rather quaint these days in light of the uh, stimulus packages that are being talked about in Washington nowadays. But it was President Nixon that uh, initiated the modern drug war policy. Uh, and even though the drug war uh, policy has been pursued for four decades now, it's very unfortunate that this policy itself is not really seriously debated in the Congress. Uh, for years and years, uh, it was basically two questions that would be asked by the policymakers on the Hill. And there were both, both of these questions were premised on escalation. The first question was, how much more money should we put into the drug war effort? And then the second question was, where should we put this money? Should we put it into the treatment side of the budget, or should we put it into law enforcement resources? What we want to do today is broaden the parameters of the debate so that more basic questions can be asked and considered. Questions like whether it's even proper to use the criminal law against people who choose to use drugs but who do no harm to others. Two weeks ago, there was a distinguished panel of leaders from around the world that issued an important report that concluded that despite the expenditure of more than a trillion dollars over the past 40 years, and despite uh, the arrests of tens of millions of people, it's evident that the hardline criminal approach has failed to curtail both the supply of drugs, the black trade is thriving, and uh, the consumption of drugs. Millions and millions of people here in the United States continue to use drugs each and every year. The commission included former presidents of Mexico, Colombia, and Brazil, and also included distinguished Americans such as our former Secretary of State George Schultz, who was secretary during the Reagan administration, and Paul Volcker, who was the former uh, chairman of the Federal Reserve. The commission said that the time is now right for a serious and comprehensive review of strategies to address problems associated with drug abuse. So that's what we want to do today, and we have two leading experts that are going to share their perspectives with us. But before I introduce our first speaker, I would ask those of you who came with cell phones, would you please take a moment now just to double check and make sure that they are turned off uh, as a courtesy to both of our speakers. Thank you. Our first speaker is Director of Undergraduate Studies uh, in the Department of Economics at Harvard University. He's also a senior fellow here at the Cato Institute. He holds a PhD in economics from MIT, and he's published more than 25 articles in refereed journals. He has many research interests, but uh, one subject he's devoted a lot of time and energy to has been drug policy. Last year, uh, he prepared this report for Cato, which we titled The Budgetary Impact of Ending Drug Prohibition. And his conclusion was is that if we were to legalize drugs, uh, the United States could improve its fiscal situation by about $88 billion per year. That's savings that go into saving money on the police and courts and the law enforcement that goes into enforcing the drug laws, but also the amount of tax revenue that could be generated if narcotics were taxed at about the same rates that the government currently taxes uh, 
liquor and, and tobacco. But he would be the first one to point out that there are many more compelling reasons to change drug policy than just the budgetary numbers. He, his 2004 book was called Drug War Crimes, and in that book he advanced the claim that the drug war brings much more harm in the form of crime, disease, and death, uh, much more harm than would, we would get from a policy of legalization, and he's going to elaborate on those points in just a moment. So please, would you welcome Dr. Jeffrey Meyer. Thank you, Tim. Thanks to Cato for hosting this event, and thanks to everyone for coming. So I'm here to defend the proposition that the US should legalize all the currently prohibited drugs, such as marijuana, cocaine, heroin, methamphetamine, and so on. And I'm mainly going to try to do this by simply explaining how an economist okay, would think about the question of whether policy should prohibit drugs. Along the way, I'll try to bring in some perspective from sort of philosophical libertarianism, considerations of freedom and liberty. I think of those as being very, very sympathetic, but I'm mainly just going to stick to uh, being what I, what I am, which is an economist, and talk about how an economist would analyze that question. Now, the basic starting point, the crucial thing I want to emphasize first, is that the question of whether policy should prohibit drugs is really two separate questions. First. Should policy do anything about drugs? Should it try to reduce the use of drugs in any way, shape, or form, whether that is via prohibition or whether that's via a syntax or public media campaigns or any other policy? Why not just let the use of drugs be the free market amount of drug use? If you conclude that policy should try to reduce drug use, then there's a second question. What method of trying to reduce drug use is the method that achieves the best ratio of benefits for society to cost for society? Prohibition, you know, perhaps, is certainly one possible approach, but it's not the only approach. And we need to think about how we should try to reduce drug use if we're going to try to do that. Now, I'm going to argue that there is not a very convincing case that we should be trying to reduce drug use at all. If that's right, then of course we shouldn't be using prohibition to drug, reduce drug use because we shouldn't be engaged in any such uh, effort in that direction. And second, I'm going to argue that even if you think policy should try to discourage the use of drugs, okay, prohibition has got to be the worst possible method for accomplishing that goal, even if you, if you take that goal as being worthwhile. So let's start by asking, should policy try to reduce drug use? Okay, should government treat drugs any differently than it treats zillions of other commodities that people are free to use as they see fit? Downhill skiing, Ben and Jerry's ice cream, okay, toaster ovens, billions of other things. Why are drugs different? Okay. The basic economic answer is they're not. Okay. The basic economic answer, the rational consumer economic perspective, says people use drugs because they want to use drugs. They think that using drugs will give them some benefit, whether that benefit is recreational, whether it's medicinal, whether it's just to look cool and being like your friends or whatever. Okay? Economics starts, it doesn't finish, and we'll get to that, but it starts with the presumption that people are rational, they understand the risks that are out there, and that when they make choices, they make them voluntarily, and so we should take we should accept consumer sovereignty. We should accept consumer choices. So people are consuming drugs because they want to. And so 
there needs to be some compelling reason to intervene, some compelling exception to that perspective, before we undertake any policy to reduce drug use. Of course, if you take a libertarian perspective, you're going to come to exactly the same conclusion. The rights-based libertarianism says people should be free to do what they want, okay, subject to a few caveats, but only a few. So our presumption should be, our starting point should be, that drugs should be legal, and the burden of proof should be on anyone who wants to restrict freedom, who wants to interfere with consumers' ability okay, to use whatever drugs they want. Now, so that's the starting point. Of course, that's not necessarily the ending point. There are reasons why both economists and libertarians might accept some reasons why government should intervene in individual choices. I want to talk about each of those in turn. And they fall under roughly two different categories. One I'll call irrationality, and the other I'll call the e economics term externalities. So let's think about each of those. A different perspective than the rational economic consumer perspective says that People don't make good choices, okay? that they're not free to exercise their own will, that they overestimate their ability to resist addiction, that they don't think carefully about the future consequences, negative consequences of drug use, and so on. And so people make lots of mistakes when left to make their own choices. And they may be especially likely to make such mistakes for commodities that can be dangerous, for commodities that can be addictive, and so on. We're not so worried that they make mistakes by buying cornflakes instead of Cheerios, but we are concerned, perhaps, that they make mistakes with respect to things which can have very serious uh, consequences. Okay? So if that's true, then some economists want to argue that government can protect consumers from themselves can make them better off by being paternalistic, by interfering with individual choices and deterring people from using these particular commodities like drugs that allegedly have these large negative effects. Okay? Now, of course, libertarians don't find that perspective particularly appealing, but leave that aside for the moment. Okay? What I want to argue is that even for economists who are open to this paternalistic view, the details and the facts and the other aspects of the whole argument don't make a good case for paternalism purely on the basis of the economics. So first, undoubtedly there are negative consequences of drug use. Undoubtedly people get addicted who didn't mean to get addicted and suffer as a result. But the range of negative consequences is often grotesquely exaggerated. Caricatures in movies, in some books, and TV shows are giving us one very, very small slice of the overall picture by showing us the extreme cases, just as most people who exercise okay, have knees with minor or little damage. Their knees don't look like those of someone who is a middle linebacker in the NFL for 20 years. The vast majority of people who use drugs don't experience the extreme conditions that are sometimes portrayed as being the normal outcome of drug use. Okay? Second, okay, second caveat to using paternalism as a basis for interfering with individual choice is that there are, of course, zillions of things that people might do irrationally. They might save too little. They might exercise too much. They might exercise too little. They might pursue religion excessively or not enough. The range of things that you could imagine government trying to improve individual choice with respect to is so vast that, of course, you would exhaust all government resources if we put government in the position of saying, we're going to make decisions for people who aren't making good decisions for themselves. Leading from that point, the third point, of course, is once you put government in the position of saying, we're going to intervene with respect to certain choices, we don't trust individual decisions about drugs, it's a very small step to say, and we don't trust individual decisions about 
what to eat, how much to eat, whether to exercise, whether to force people to be religious or to prevent people to be religious. And of course, governments have engaged in all those sorts of policies okay, in different countries around the world through history. Okay? Finally, while it's undoubtedly possible, indeed likely, that some people use drugs okay, irrationally in ways that are self-destructive, huge fractions of people Okay, appear not to. Huge fractions of people appear to use drugs in ways which appear to be neutral or indeed quite beneficial okay, for those people. And so if we do anything to try to discourage drug use, we may be discouraging those people who are using irrationally, or we may not be reaching those people, but we would simultaneously be preventing people who would get some benefit from drug use from getting that benefit. Okay? So Paternalism is an understandable perspective. Okay? It's not one libertarians like. It's one that a lot of economists have sort of accepted as a possible framework. But when you look at the details, you realize that even in the simple economics perspective, paternalism has the potential for huge cost. Okay? It can easily end up doing more harm than good okay, overall. Okay? Similarly, if you come to the issue of paternalism from the libertarian perspective, Okay, then of course you're going to point out that freedom and liberty mean the freedom and liberty to do what you want, whether that turns out to be good or bad. It's not just the freedom to live your life the way the government thinks you ought to live your life. It's the freedom to make mistakes, even if those mistakes are sometimes quite serious. So I don't find the paternalism perspective a good defense of government policies that try to intervene in individual choices about drug use or anything else for that matter. Okay? Now there's a different justification, okay, which a I'll be slightly more sympathetic toward, which says that even if individuals are all being rational, or whether or not they're being rational in their drug use, they may sometimes harm others by using drugs, driving under the influence of drugs, okay, by using drugs during pregnancy and adversely affecting a, a, a fetus, okay, by making themselves ill and making excessive use of publicly funded health care. Okay, it's frequently referred to as a fiscal externality, and so on. It's certainly right that drug use sometimes generates externalities, just as alcohol does, just as tobacco does, just as many other things do. Okay? So okay, interventions that try to address those externalities are potentially defensible to economists. Okay? Likewise, libertarians, while defending individual liberty vehemently, do recognize that if one person's exercise of his liberty negatively affects someone else's liberty, if I drive down the highway under the influence and I harm innocent people, pedestrians and, and uh, other motorists, that is potentially a quite legitimate area for government to intervene because my exercise of liberty is taking away someone else's. Okay? So there's certainly room for both economists and libertarians to think that some policy to reduce drug use might make sense from the perspective of externality. Excuse me. Still, there are very important caveats. Okay? As with the paternalism argument, the externalities are routinely grossly exaggerated. For example, there were huge horror stories in the mid-1980s about the effect of crack okay, on the social and mental and physical outcomes for babies born with crack-addicted mothers. Those tur stories turned out to be grotesque exaggerations based on very small biased samples. Not that one would ever recommend that pregnant women consume crack, but okay, one should have a sense of proportion about how negative those effects are. Okay. Of course, there are zillions of goods which cause externalities. And if we were honest okay, about which ones really are the big ones, we'd probably be targeting very different things. My favorite example is late night TV. The number of people who stay up too late watching Jay Leno okay, and therefore are sleepy the next day at work and unproductive at work or maybe even fall asleep and you know, let some big tractor trailer have a big accident is probably huge. 
that potentially affects a large fraction of the population, those are negative externalities on everyone else. Okay? So a thoughtful and consistent non-politicized examination of what really causes externalities would be quite extensive. Okay? And it's very hard to figure out what really generates externalities on that. Classic example is tobacco. You might think, gee, tobacco is really bad. It generates a fiscal externality because tobacco smokers get sick, okay? and then they use publicly funded health care. Well, that's true to some extent, but they also tend to die young, which means they're not around to collect a lot of Medicare and Social Security. So the externality logic applied consistently could say, depending how the numbers come out, we should actually be subsidizing tobacco use. Then we'd get all these people out of the population as collect Medicare. We would solve Paul Ryan's problem in a heartbeat. Okay? So no one, of course, would argue that. But that shows that the externality argument is often used in a very selective, okay, not consistent, and not sort of fact-based manner. So reasonable people can defend some policies directed at drugs based on the externality perspective, but they have to recognize that it's very messy in practice, okay? and it may in fact be doing on net not argue in favor of such policies because any attempt to reduce the externality reducing drug use is also going to affect the non-externality generating drug use. We're going to harm those people who manage to use drugs rationally, safely, without harming others. Just as taxes on alcohol, for example, may prevent some people from drunk driving by reducing their alcohol use, but for sure they raise the price, okay, and therefore lower the well-being of every moderate alcohol drinker, okay, who doesn't drive under the influence and doesn't generate any externalities. So let me summarize what I've said so far. I want to argue that the advocates of any policy that restricts or limits, okay, individual drug use should bear the burden of proof, that it shouldn't be the legalizers who have to defend their position. It should be the prohibitionists who have to defend their position. Okay? That reasonable people can make raise concerns about whether we should have some kinds of policies that target inappropriate kinds of drug use, just as we have policies for inappropriate kinds of alcohol use, like driving under the influence. But it's very hard to make a coherent argument for general presumptions that all drug use should be discouraged or reduced. Okay? In particular, okay, nothing in this general discussion of why you maybe might, under some narrow circumstances, want to reduce drug use, says that prohibition is the right policy, says that eliminating all drug use is the right policy. It at best suggests that there are some kinds of drug use we might want to reduce. Okay? Now, given that, let's set that issue aside for the moment and say, Imagine that society has chosen to try to reduce drug use generally. Okay? Is prohibition a good method for trying to achieve that goal? And I want to argue that it's basically the worst possible approach. Okay? Why? Prohibition doesn't eliminate the market for drugs. Okay? The rhetoric of some politicians, some policymakers, acts as though by passing a law, we can get rid of drug use. But of course, that's blatantly false. Prohibition probably does have some effect in reducing drug use. The evidence would suggest small effects. But clearly, huge markets remain, okay, despite the fact that we have quite severe penalties for selling drugs, for possessing drugs, and so on. Okay? So what prohibition does is it creates a black market. It creates an underground market in which people buy and sell drugs. And in that black market, a bunch of really unfortunate things happen. In the black market, we see far more violence than we would see if drugs were legal and transacted in legal markets. Why? Because black market suppliers and consumers for any good can't resolve their differences of opinion, their disputes, okay, with courts, with lawyers. They do so with guns because they're not allowed access to the legal dispute resolution system. 
Prohibition generates corruption. That's especially obvious in many sort of developing countries that are suppliers of drugs because, again, the people in the drug industry can't have ballot initiatives. They can't lobby Congress in the standard way that most businesses do. They engage in bribes to jurors, to police, to judges, and so on. Okay? Prohibition generates income-generating crime, theft, prostitution, and so on, by forcing the prices of drugs to be much higher. Prohibition lowers quality control. So the people who continue to use drugs despite prohibition are clearly worse off. They don't know what dosage they're getting. They don't know what adulterants might be in the drugs. And of course, they face the risk of going to jail, which is one of the worst things that can happen to you, far worse than most kinds of simple use of the, even the, the strong illegal drugs. We get greater spread of HIV because of prohibition. Under prohibition, we don't give people easy access to clean needles. We force the price of drugs to be much higher, so people have a strong incentive to inject to get a big bang for the buck. Much of the spread of HIV in the last 20 years in the US has been the result of intravenous drug use, of sharing dirty needles. That's directly a result of prohibition. Because of prohibition, we have limitations on medical research. We have limitations on civil liberties, all sorts of extremely aggressive policies, such as knocking down doors without uh, no-knock uh, warrants and, and things like that, that sometimes put innocent people at great risk and, more generally, infringe on reasonable notions of civil liberties. We've created havoc in many supplier countries because we have pushed them to try to enforce the drug prohibition that we think is the good policy. And the list goes on. When you listen to that list, you think, gee, even if I really don't like drugs, even if I really wish everybody did not use drugs, there's got to be a better approach. The particular approach we're using now is just incredibly insane. So what's the alternative? The obvious alternative to economists okay, is a syntax. Syntax, or some people get upset when I use the word sin because they think I'm disapproving of drugs. I'm just using the word syntax because that's the common, common term. Compare a prohibition to a policy of simply imposing a relatively high tax rate okay, on drugs, similar to what we do for alcohol and tobacco. Okay? Can show in a very straightforward way with standard economics that any increase in price and reduction in consumption that you can achieve via prohibition, you can also achieve okay, with the appropriate size syntax, assuming that you devote appropriate resources, roughly the same resources, to enforcing that prohibition, excuse me, enforcing that syntax as you were using to enforce that prohibition. So first, we've gotten about the same increase in price and the same reduction in consumption. But there's a crucial difference. With the syntax, okay, government collects a lot of tax revenue. And the tax revenue is a transfer from people who purchase drugs to the general Coffers can be used to build hospitals, can be used for tax rebates, it can be used for other things. When we have prohibition, we force huge expenditures of resources on extra judges and jurors and prisons and so on okay, in order to enforce okay, the underground trade. We draw all sorts of resources into the production of drugs because it's done in a much more expensive way when it's driven underground. So we're clearly better off by enforcing the same increase in price and reduction in consumption that we've decided is appropriate if you accept that perspective, which I don't particularly, but if you wanted to do that, okay, by using the syntax rather than by using okay, the prohibition that we currently use. Um, per perfect timing there. So the economic reasoning says okay, maybe, okay, maybe there's a case for some kinds of interventions to reduce some kinds of drug use in some circumstances, but no good case that there should be a general presumption that somebody sitting in his or her living room consuming drugs and not doing anything else to anybody should be interfered with in any way, shape, or form. 
Okay? So there's not a good case for us to intervene at all. If we're going to intervene at all, okay, we should be intervening in a way which achieves a good ratio of benefits to cost. The prohibitionist mentality just assumes that the only goal is reducing drug use. It doesn't think carefully about at what cost. And we are experiencing enormous cost in the attempt to achieve reductions in drug use and not achieving especially large reductions in drug use, if any. So we're mainly getting cost and very little benefit. Whatever benefit we are getting, we could get much more effectively with the taxation approach. Okay? So I just want to end by saying one more time. I think it's a tragedy that in a country that prides itself on a history of freedom and liberty, the burden of proof is now on the legalizers and not on the prohibitionist. Okay? The presumption should always be that people get to do what they want to do unless someone can show convincingly and compellingly and in a quantitatively important way that one person's exercise of individual choice okay, is seriously inhibiting something else, somebody else's liberty, somebody else's ability to lead their own lives. And I don't think the prohibition argument has come anywhere close to meeting that burden of proof. Thank you. Okay, our, our second speaker today is Dr. Robert DuPont, and he is a well-known expert in the field of drug abuse and drug addiction. Dr. DuPont was actually one of the key people, key staff people in the Nixon administration when uh, the drug war was initiated in 1971. See, he had been working here in Washington, D.C. with heroin addicts, and his work caught the attention of Nixon's domestic policy staff. And he was then appointed uh, the director of the Narcotics Treatment Administration. So it's going to be great to have his perspective now that uh, 40 years have passed, uh, looking over uh, the policies that were initiated. Uh, after leaving government service, Dr. DuPont became the founding president of the Institute for Behavior and Health, an organization that is dedicated to preventing drug abuse. He's widely published in the medical journals and has published uh, uh, 15 books, including Getting Tough with Gateway Drugs and Drug Testing in the Criminal Justice System. Please welcome Dr. Robert DuPont. Thank you, Tim. I am just very proud to be here and very grateful to uh, Tim Lynch for inviting me into, for, to Cato for bringing a focus onto uh, drug policy in the country. Uh, as you probably know, there's a tremendous uh, increase in interest in drug policy in the last few years, and Cato has been at the center of that. And I'm really uh, very grateful and also grateful uh, for Tim to, uh, to, to invite me. Let me say just a word about what happened 40 years ago so we get the, at least from my perspective on what that was. Uh, that uh, June 17, 1971 was the day, as Tim said, the president had a press conference and talked about heroin addiction and established the first White House drug czar, a fellow named Jerry Jaffe, who was my colleague. Uh, and the first thing he did with Jerry Jaffe the next day on June 18th was send him off to Vietnam where there was a tremendous heroin addiction problem among U.S. Uh, service personnel to give you an idea what some of the priorities were uh, at that time. Uh, following right on that, uh, that event, that announcement, uh, that was made at that time was the establishment of the White House Drug Office that uh, Dr. Jaffe had. That legislation, it's interesting, went through the Congress, uh, through the Senate, uh, without a single dissenting vote. 
Every single Democrat and every single Republican voted for it. And one of the things I want to talk with you about is that the drug policy that we have uh, is a completely bipartisan uh, policy. I think I'm the only person uh, who has known uh, all 13 White House drugs are chiefs from the beginning. I think I'm the only one who's known all five directors of NIDA, the National Institute on Drug Abuse, and I was the first director of that, which is the principal organization that does research on drugs. And I have known all nine heads of DEA uh, quite well. So uh, I bring to you quite a lot of experience uh, with these things. And I want to emphasize that this, these policies from the beginning have been bipartisan, uh, every single one of them. Uh, and we've had Democratic and Republican presidents. Uh, and just to, to give you an example, uh, the commission report that uh, uh, Tim talked about that was just released, uh, within 24 hours, the release of that, uh, President Obama's uh, drug czar, uh, Gil Kurlikowski, said uh, legalization is uh, not a good idea. And he thinks that the commission report uh, is actually going to make the drug problem worse in the world. That's Obama's drug czar. Uh, to think about that. So uh, to, get, to have some perspective on where that is. The other thing that's very interesting uh, is the focus on the criminal justice system. What happened, Tim said that, that I, I had started the treatment program, and that's very important, a treatment program for heroin addicts in the, in the District of Columbia. And what, turned, what changed on, on June 17, 1971, was not a criminal justice direction. But it was a dramatic change, the biggest change, in fact, in American drug policy in 100 years. And what that was, what Nixon did on that day, was balance the law enforcement approach, which had been virtually the only approach that the government had, with a similar treatment approach to the drug problem. And that was what was new. And in fact, during the Nixon administration, it was the highest percentage devoted to treatment, research, and prevention that there's been ever since. So what was really dramatic then was not law enforcement, but it was the emergence of treatment, prevention, and research as an equal partner with law enforcement in American drug policy. So I want that, that record to be, to be clear. Now, for those of you who are the kind of an academic bent, I want to bring up two names for you to think about. Uh, who have this debate that we're having today is a very old debate that goes back to the beginnings of drug policy in this country. But the, the modern version of it uh, goes back to the 1960s. And the, the patron for the more, uh, let's say, tolerant attitude toward drug use is named Alfred Lindesmith. And he wrote a book called The Doctor and the Addict, I, I mean, the, the Addict and the Law, The Addict and the Law, uh, in 1965. Uh, which is a, a, a kind of manifesto uh, about uh, uh, decriminalization of drugs and medicalization. His vision was not that any consumer would buy it, but that you could just go to the doctor and get any drug you wanted to, to use uh, for recreational purposes, essentially. And the opposite side of that argument was from a Swedish psychiatrist named Niels Beirut, who wrote a decade later about what had happened in Sweden. And I'm going to talk a little bit about that uh, uh, later in my, in my presentation. But his approach was uh, that the, the medicalization of drug use, that is, giving drugs to drug addicts, had two negative effects. One is they kept using instead of stopping. And two is that they spread the drugs to other people. 
So when you gave the drugs to the drug addicts, you had two negative outcomes. One is they didn't stop, uh, and two is they spread it around to other people. In any event, uh, that's it. Now, what happens in drug policy discussions, and, and it's unfortunate, I think, is that everything gets reduced to what can go on a bumper sticker. It, 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 the, the, uh, the position one takes gets reduced to the simplest kind of terms. And when you do that, it comes out to either you're for or you're against. And I hope that you, what you'll hear here, although you could characterize Jeff and me in that way, and I'd be the against and he'd be the for, uh, I, I think, I hope you'll be able to follow a, a, a more nuanced and a little more complex way of thinking about this. Now, my view is about drug policy is that what is needed in the U.S. and around the world is a balanced, restrictive drug policy. That is, a, pro, a, a policy that balances criminal justice and treatment, that balances supply reduction and demand reduction to work together to achieve the goal of reducing non-medical drug use in the society. So that's what I'm uh, supporting, and that has been the core of what the American policy has, and, and the United States has carried that policy and, and uh, supported it globally. So it is a global uh, drug policy with that, with that uh, uh, balanced uh, idea. And I would call attention, some of you saw the uh, article in the Wall Street Journal uh, where George Schultz and Paul Volcker talked about uh, this commission report that I was talking about. And it's very interesting that those two economists specifically said twice in their op-ed that they opposed legalization. Uh, just to, to keep that uh, on, on this. Now, what I'm proposing to you is not that we stand pat, that what we've got now is the best that can be. And I'm going to talk at the end of my remarks about what I think can be done to do a much better job uh, than, we're, than we're doing now. Uh, but I want to talk about the, the thing that is most striking to me about the critiques that are, that are leveled against the current policy. They almost all focus only on the criminal justice side of things and act as if there is nothing else going on. Nothing could be further from the truth. And I think it's, it's very interesting uh, to, think about, uh, to think about this sort of uh, caricature, caricature uh, that is created. And then the other thing is the way the harms are thought about. The only harms that are counted are, quote, the harms of the criminal justice system. So, Imprisonment is a cost. Uh, police is a cost. Those are considered costs. Now, if you think about the drug problem and you say, well, what's causing the problems is the criminal justice system, well, then clearly legalization is the solution. I understand that. But I don't think that's what's really happening. I think the problem is the drug use that is causing the problem. And I'm going to talk more about that. And it's very hard to imagine that if the drug use is causing most of the problems in the society and not the, quote, prohibition, it's hard to see how legalization would do anything but to increase the problem. And I, I want to pursue that idea and let, let you think about that together. But the other sort of mantra that comes out is that the drug war has failed. In other words, this current policy, which I'm going to call a balanced restrictive policy, has failed. Now, that's a very interesting uh, conclusion to reach. Certainly, there are lots of problems. But let's think about a little bit about comparing drug use in this country, illegal drug use, with two commonly used drugs, and that's, uh, uh, I mean, that's alcohol and tobacco, to think about what's going on. 
Now, in terms of, the, uh, of, of these uses, we have 22 million Americans who have used any illegal drug in the last 30 days, 22 million out of 310 million. The alcohol number is 131 million, and the cigarette number is 70 million. Now, if somebody wants evidence that how uh, uh, prohibition works, Think about those numbers. I don't think anybody who knows much about drug use would think that alcohol and tobacco are more attractive drugs than, than cocaine or heroin or a whole raft of drugs, because then the group I put or all of those drugs to think about that is 22 million. And if there's any question about the biology, I'm going to talk some more about the biology in a little bit, but the, the fact is uh, that, that uh, uh, that the, the laboratory studies, when you look at animals in laboratories, the, the intensity of their brain reward from these other drugs is much greater than the intensity of the brain reward from alcohol and tobacco. So if we had a policy that was essentially like that, what you would have was numbers more similar. Now, uh, that's about it. Mean, also, a statement was made globally, and I think this is kind of an, uh, an interesting thing to, uh, uh, to, to think about, too, that, that in the, the U.S., uh, to, 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 to think that in terms of our uh, uh, drug use uh, problems in this country, uh, we are, the United States has about 5% uh, of, uh, of the world's population. We have 310 million out of uh, uh, 6 plus billion. Uh, in the United States. We have about 25% of the world's GDP, and we have about 20% of the illegal drug users in the world, just to keep that in perspective. But we have about 70% of all the treatment resources, uh, all the prevention resources, and even more than that, in terms of research, is in the United States. So in terms of our uh, uh, investments, it's very clear. And the other thing to notice about treatment, when people say it's the criminal justice system versus treatment, 37% of the people in treatment in the United States are there because they're sent there by the criminal justice system. If you took the criminal justice system out, uh, that would be uh, uh, reduced by that amount. Now, let me give you quickly a, a, a different narrative of what the problem is. Many of the drugs we have today are old. Marijuana uh, uh, is old, opium, cocaine. But the modern, the drug epidemic we have today is as new as the computer. And how can I say that when these drugs are old? Because always, until the 1960s, drugs were typically used by routes of administration that didn't produce great reward, and societies were exposed to just one drug or another drug. Starting in the 1960s, we had the entire population exposed to drugs by powerful routes of administration, especially smoking, snorting, and injecting. That is new. And not only was it just the drugs like uh, cocaine and, uh, and uh, heroin uh, and marijuana, but also a range of many other chemicals, including synthetic drugs, have come on to create a tremendously different menu uh, in the population than has ever happened before in the history of the world. And this. This modern drug epidemic definitely started in the United States. That was the beginning of it. But it is clearly a global epidemic now, uh, with, as I say, 80% of the drug use being outside the United States. 
Now, I mentioned that I was the first director of the National Institute on Drug Abuse. The, the, the single greatest achievement of 40 years of research, uh, and, and now spending a billion dollars a year on research for through NIDA, has been the understanding of brain biology. And the reality is that unlike other commodities, as Jeff was talking about, drugs produce much more intense brain reward than any of those other things, including the natural uh, stimuli for uh, brain reward. They create an entirely different uh, pattern of behavior uh, that, is, that is much more uh, uh, difficult to, 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 uh, uh, to deal with. My sense about it is that th this modern drug epidemic uh, is creating threats. Uh, Tim was talking about how Richard Nixon talked about the threat to our society. Uh, major consequences, in the drug threat is, major consequences in terms of health, uh, major consequences in terms of public safety, major consequences in terms of productivity in the country, and that that justifies a, a serious effort to try to limit uh, the non-medical use of, of drugs in, in the society, uh, and that's the goal. I think the challenge of drug policy, and it is a very serious challenge, is to how to do this in cost-effective ways with, with values that, uh, that, we're, that we're comfortable with, that, that, are, that are compatible with our modern lifestyle. But the goal of the policy, it seems to me, is to reduce non-medical drug use. That, that, is, that, that is what's important with these drugs. Uh, that's how I see it. Now, how do I look at, at where we're going with this? Remember I said that I'm not uh, um, saying that we should just stay with where we are. I think there are many things we can do uh, that, are, that are going to be better. But before I get into those, let me ask you to do a little thought experiment with me. Uh, think, think with me. One of the things that you'll notice about the, uh, and, and Jeff didn't bring these up, but many of the people in this commission report that came out do, and that is that when they talk about what they want to do about the drug problem, they want to do things like uh, uh, give uh, needles to people who are injecting drugs. They call it needle exchange, but just give them needles. Uh, or they want to have injection rooms where people can go to get drugs and inject them so they don't have to go on the street to get the drugs, sort of like Alfred Lindesmith was talking about in 1965. So I ask you to think about, if, if you have a family member, somebody in your family who you care a lot about, and this person has a drug problem, where in your thinking about what you're going to do to help that person would you put the idea of giving him drugs? And then I ask you to think about if he was an intravenous drug user, where would you put giving him needles? What would you do? Or, and some of you have had this experience. What have you done to deal with somebody who's using drugs, who you care about, who's important to you? And what I'm telling you, my conclusion is that the proposals that are made routinely to deal with this problem are contrary to the interests of the drug user. Because as Niels Berry found, they perpetuate the problem. That the successful approach to that family is to have a very clear position to say, no more. Because it's ruining the, it's ruining the person's life. One of the things that I like to think about, and Jeff was talking about freedom, there's nothing less free than a person who's addicted to drugs. 
I consider that chemical slavery. And I think about getting a person out of that as being emancipation from chemical slavery. That's what I think about recovery as being. Now, uh, Tim didn't mention, but I'm a practicing psychiatrist, so I, for this 40 years, have had my own practice. And I've seen a lot of drug addicts and alcoholics in my own practice and have a pretty good idea about how they get well uh, and what the factors are. And let me just mention one thing about that that hasn't been mentioned. I think uh, I'm very proud to be an American for all kinds of reasons. But the thing that is one of the things that I'm most proud about is the contribution uh, that, that took place in June of 1935 in Akron, Ohio, with the creation of Alcoholics Anonymous. Uh, that is a truly American response to this problem that is very, very impressive. And, and that's how most people get well and stay well uh, from this disease, certainly in, in my experience. So that's the first question I have. I want you to think about what you do with somebody you love who has a drug problem. Now, the second thing I've thought experiment I want you to take about, uh, we're talking here about drugs like uh, 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 marijuana and cocaine and heroin, uh, methamphetamine. Those are illegal drugs purely. But the biggest, the fastest growing drug problem in this country is prescription drug abuse. Okay. Uh, we have in this country the overdose deaths from, pres from prescribed opiates, the unintended overdose deaths, have increased fourfold in the last decade in this country and are now more than heroin and cocaine combined. Or another statistic, in my lifetime, I never thought I would see any drug that was more frequently initiated, the first use was occurring, it's called incidence of drug use, than marijuana. But every year since 2005, non-medical use of prescription opiates is more than first use of marijuana. That is an exploding drug problem. The deaths now from overdose deaths in this country are 33,000 a year. In 17 states, it's now more than traffic fatalities. This is from non-medical use of prescription drugs, like OxyContin and Vicodin. Uh, and that is exploding as a problem. Now, think about that problem. There's no mafia. Uh, it all comes from the doctor and the prescription. Now, tell me how legalization is going to reduce those numbers. Jeff's talking about this being a commodity. Okay, let's think about OxyContin as a, as a commodity. Do you think it makes sense to have anybody be able to buy that as much as they want and use it any way they want to, like they do any other commodity? Does that appeal to you as a social policy? Because that's what would happen. One more minute. But you've, but you've got a lot of other things. There you go. OK. I want to end by, by saying this in, in, in conclusion. The model I like and am supporting is the Swedish model that came out of the work of Niels Beirut. And that is a balanced, restrictive policy that uses the criminal justice system with treatment to achieve goals that neither can achieve alone. And I think there's a tremendous potential for that in the United States. Those of you who are interested in uh, some of these other ideas that I didn't uh, describe, uh, please take a look at our website for the Institute for Behavior and Health. It's ibhinc.org. And I appreciate very much the chance to be with you. Thank you.
Okay, before we take your questions, we're going to have a very brief second round, so we're going to give each speaker five minutes to respond to what the other has said. Jeff? Do you want me to go back there? Or it's up to you. Um, so I guess I want to focus on sort of one particular point, which is the comparison between alcohol, tobacco, and illegal drugs. So I think that illustrates very clearly sort of what divides you know, Dr. Tupont from me. One is he's sort of assuming, I think it's mainly assumption and not good evidence, that we would see dramatic increases in the use of the currently illegal drugs if they were legal. And he's basing that in large part on the fact that alcohol and tobacco are legal, and they indeed are used by a much higher fraction of the population than the currently illegal drugs. But that's just not the right comparison. We have all sorts of ways of seeing whether people would adjust their use of various commodities based on changes in price and availability. There's lots of work like that that's been done for illegal drugs. And it suggests very clearly that the number of people who have any desire to use such products is relatively small. It would certainly be affected by legalization because the drugs would be cheaper and they would be readily available. But of course, there are billions of very dangerous substances out there, activities out there, that lots of people just choose not to consume. Okay? Most people don't go bungee jumping. Most people don't go skiing down you know, double black diamond ski slopes that they know they're not capable of handling. The vast majority of people, based on just common sense observation and all the evidence, is that most people would not just change over to consuming many more substances or consuming more dangerous substances, that indeed in a free market, people would have much more ability to choose that substance that gave them the intoxication or the pain relief or whatever medical benefit they were looking for at the relatively low risk and avoid the risk that they're sort of forced onto now by the current legal regime. People are taking, for example, a prescription sort of antipsychotics, prescription uh, very, uh, psychotropic drugs that have all sorts of negative side effects when some of them feel they'd be better off being able to smoke marijuana without being hassled. We'd see much more of that in a free market. Particularly, let's focus on tobacco. We have seen a huge reduction in the use of tobacco in the United States over the last 60 years. It started very clearly back in the early 1950s when the first significant and really convincing studies showed that there was a serious risk of lung cancer okay, from smoking cigarettes. Okay? And there were government efforts that may have contributed to that huge decline, but there were also a huge number of private efforts, just doctors telling their patients not to smoke, coaches telling their players not to smoke, word of mouth convincing people, family members convincing their kids not to smoke, and so on. So whether it was the government or whether it was the private sector is a harder question, but we didn't ban it. We had no prohibition. We used common sense information and public health approaches to achieve an enormous improvement in the public health and a balancing of the costs and benefits of policy by not using prohibition. So again, Dr. Dupont is basically taking the view that he thinks we should try to discourage all non-medical drug use. I think that's a completely misguided approach because a huge fraction of that drug use is helpful, is beneficial, or at worst neutral to the people who engage in it. But in addition, if he wants it to emphasize this balanced approach of both trying to reduce demand and trying to provide treatment, okay, prohibition is the wrong way to try to reduce demand. A syntax is a much, much more cost-effective way of reducing demand because it doesn't generate all the huge negatives associated with the black market. Thank you. I've uh, 
been in a number of debates over the years. I never was in a debate like this. This guy is something special. Uh, now, normally what I get into is people come down their bottom line and say, we need to talk about drug policy. We need to have an honest debate. But they never get around to saying what they really want to do. And this guy just comes right out and says, boom, it's a commodity, tax it, and let anybody use it if they want to use it. Now, could, would you say the same thing about all prescription drugs? Yes. 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 See, so I, with the possible I, exception of antibiotics, <laughs> because there's a real externality from the excessive use of antibiotics. But okay. for everything else, everything yes. Else. I, I love the guy. I, you know, it reminds me of the movie The Wire, about that guy who walked between the Twin Towers and the wire. And you say, how did he do that? This is my man. He's my man <laughs> on the wire. I think that's right. But, but I really think what I, I like to stay with what Jeff said. I asked you to think about what do you think would happen to all the drugs if they were sold uh, with a tax on them. Of course, you couldn't have a very big tax because they can be sold around the tax with black market too. So the tax has to be modest uh, in there. But anyhow, with a tax. And what do you think? I'll tell you what I think. And that is, I don't think I'm going to start using any of those drugs. And I don't think Jeff is either. I don't think a lot of people here would either. But who would, would be an awful lot of young people would do it. And a lot of people who are disadvantaged in various ways, including the mentally ill, who have a much higher rate of drug use uh, than other people. So I, I really think the biggest losers in that would be the most vulnerable people in the society. Uh, and if you'll notice the way drug use starts, it starts in the teenage years. So when a drug becomes available, the initial buyers, and then they carry on those habits as they get older. So I'm happy with the way Jeff set it up. I ask you to think about it. what kind of world would we have, and do you think he's correct that the evidence is people wouldn't do it and we would have lower costs? And if so, good luck to you. Thank you. Okay, we're going to take your questions now. I do have three requests. Uh, first, when I call on you, please wait for our microphone to arrive so that everybody can hear your question. Second, identify yourself and any affiliation that you might have. And third, please keep the questions brief so that we can get to as many people as possible. Yes, the young lady here. Um, my question is for Mr. DuPont. Um, what is your name? My name is Allison, and I'm from the Competitive Enterprise Institute. And I was wondering, uh, you congratulated Myron for being open about his conclusions, as radical as they seem. But I was wondering what your thoughts are on alcohol. You talk about paternalism and how the most uh, least, um, uh, sorry, disadvantaged members of the society are disproportionately affected by drug abuse. But the same could be said of alcoholism, that young people, that poor people, et cetera, are ravaged by alcoholism. And would you support an approach that criminalizes alcoholism as we have in, a, in the past, as long as it was coupled with treatment? And is that like a logical following from your conclusions? Well, I, I'm interested <laughs> with respect to both alcohol and tobacco uh, in policies that, that reduce the use. But I'm not interested in, in criminalizing uh, either of those two. No, but, but think about OxyContin. What do you think about somebody who sells their OxyContin or gives it away? Would you like not to have that be criminal? I'd ask you what you think of that. Okay. Okay, down here. Uh, my question is for you, sir. Um, you didn't really go into Your name is? Lori Watkins from the Department of Defense, but I'm not... It has nothing to do with what I do for <laughs> In a former life, I used to work in the Florida legislature and um, went to um, Wake Forest and got a, an, a 
degree in addiction studies because there's a huge problem in Florida with prescription drugs abuse and there's the laws down there are very uh, lax. Lost a best friend, lost three other friends to overdose of Oxycontin specifically. So my question to you is you didn't really go into a lot about prescription drugs. Um, I guess my question is with cigarettes, there's a restriction on age to where you can purchase those. Cousin had a surgery, 14 years old, on her shoulder, prescribed her Oxycontin, 14 mm. years old. Because of things that you know I knew about it and other family members encouraged my aunt and uncle to take her off of this immediately. Do you think that age has anything to do with it like you know the gentleman was saying and and how do you just go into more detail I guess about prescription drug abuse and the effects of that over alcohol and cocaine and other things that are currently illegal because these are legal drugs that I'm just reading a Time magazine article 35% up for opiates so how do you feel about sorry my question's all over the place but specifically prescription drug abuse well, I think that the way we treat prescription drugs is basically a partial prohibition. Okay? They're prohibited for some uses, but not for others. Some people want, want them for the uses that are prohibited. So roughly the same analysis applies. We're going to generate a lot of costs okay, associated with black market trading, with the sort of gray market trading and OxyContin and so on. The evidence is that we're not doing very much to discourage people from using it. There's, as you mentioned, all sorts of people are able to get it anyway, despite all the restrictions. So we're getting the cost, and we're not getting very much benefit. Now, on the minimum purchase age or the, or the youth issue, hey, it's clearly reasonable to think that we would like to restrict access to all sorts of potentially dangerous things until people are 18 or something like that. It's clearly not very effective. You know, the restrictions on alcohol and tobacco don't work very well. So it's sort of a false hope to think that we can sort of have our cake and eat it too by having those restrictions but having general legalization. We have to accept kids are going to get access to it. But they're already getting access to the illegal drugs. If you read data from the Monitoring the Future survey of high school seniors, they can say consistently that they find it just as easier, easier to get access to illegal drugs as they do to alcohol, and they find it easy to get access to both. So all of this effort is mainly just breeding hypocrisy. It's teaching kids that laws are for suckers. It's teaching kids that they can get around what they want to get around. To me, that's much worse than the fact that some will experiment. Okay? And some fraction will have bad experiences, but most of those are having the bad experiences already, and we're getting all the negatives of the prohibition. Okay, the gentleman on the aisle in the blue suit. I'm Peter Whitney from American University. Question for both of you. Um, on, uh, do you differentiate between drugs? Uh, and both of you uh, for this question. For example, uh, Dr. DuPont pointed out the, the immediate brain effect of some of these illegal drugs is a lot stronger than alcohol or tobacco, I think it's a, that's a very significant point. Would you, either one of you, characterize marijuana as more towards the alcohol, tobacco, and less towards what I understand, crack cocaine and OxyContin, if, if you take them, you almost, it's a biological problem, not a consumer choice problem. You've taken them and then you're, you just can't wait till you get your next hit. Uh, I want to know what you, how you would, uh, would so respond I, to those two ideas. First of all, I, the characterization of any of these substances as you try them and you're hooked, 
is just completely, utterly grotesque exaggeration. If you think even about the movies, in The French Connection, when Gene Hackman is chained to a bed, okay, and they try to get him hooked on heroin, okay, it takes them several weeks. They, they're there injecting him day after day for several weeks before he's physically addicted to the heroin. So it's not that random experimentation, occasional use gets you hooked. That's just not right. Okay? In terms of different drugs, to me, we have to think about the policy. And the policy is going to have the same effects, whatever the physical properties of the drug. So it's certainly true that the direct medical negatives associated with marijuana seem to be drastically lower than the possible negative side effects of large doses of opiates. Okay? But all of them can be used in moderation for extended periods with not obvious ill effects. And what's crucial is if you try to prohibit anything. If we prohibited coffee, we'd have drive-by shootings related to, to, you know, to Starbucks. If we prohibited ice cream, we would have people dealing you know, Ben and Jerry's out the back of their cars and you know, in street corners and shady neighborhoods. It's the prohibition that determines the structure of the market and most of the things we associate as negatives with these substances. So I don't make any differentiation across substances. Did you want to say something? Well, I, I just say that about the idea that, uh, that it's already uh, as bad as it could be. Uh, you know, only in drug policy does that logic follow. It'd be like saying that we've got a serious speeding problem. Most people who speed don't cause any problems for anybody. They just get there a little earlier. Uh, so why don't we just prohibit speeding when they have an accident instead of when they're speeding? And they say, well, they're speeding anyhow, so why not make it legal? Do you think you'd have more speeding if there was no speeding law? Do you think you'd have less speeding when there's no speeding law? To me, uh, the, the normal workings of the brain seem to stop when you talk about drug policy. Uh, clearly, it would have an effect. Uh, on, on the use. Back to your question about uh, which drugs. Uh, each of the drugs is quite unique. Uh, I think there's, there's an illusion that somehow marijuana is uniquely different. Uh, it does have differences. One of the most striking is there's no overdose death. Uh, from it, which is very important uh, in terms of the consequences. Uh, but it does have other effects that the others don't have. For example, its connection to mental illness and psychosis uh, is particularly uh, worrisome uh, in, in that drug. And also highways. Today on America's roads and highways, there's almost as much uh, death and accidents from marijuana use as there is from alcohol. Uh, people don't know that because they don't do drug tests of the people, but the recently study produced by the, released by the White House Drug Office shows that from data from the Department of Transportation. So I, I think that, uh, that, that making an exception for marijuana is opening the door. You'd have a lot of other candidates for exception uh, to that kind of thing, and I think it's a to me, it's, it's much uh, simpler to say non-medical drug use of any of the substances that are used by uh, drug abusers uh, is, is a bad idea. Yes, right here. Uh, wait for the micro. Wait for the microphone. <laughs> My name is uh, Steve Hank, and this is a comment kind of question. Uh, have either of you considered some of the what I would call the unintended perverse consequences of of having drugs illegal? For example, the message to people originally in smoking was, "All these other drugs are illegal." Smoking is legal, so it must be okay. So you're sending a message by making some things illegal and others illegal. You're sending these crazy messages. The other crazy message is marijuana, you know, showing it is, is illegal, and everybody who tries it 
sees that that all these horror stories don't exist. So there you get the opposite intention. So you know, I, what I, my question to you is: Do you do you realize that if you legalize everything, then everybody is going to be look at these things? It's up to me to decide if it's really wrong. Why, by making them illegal, you're actually allowing people not not to uh, have to investigate whether it's illegal. They think the government has done it for them. Let me just say about drug use in general, that when anybody uses any drugs, including heroin, uh, they generally conclude they can handle it and it's not a problem when they first use it. I mean, that's a very common experience. I mean, universal uh, with experience. And, and who's going to have the problem in that group is uh, not predictable by anybody, including the drug user. But what they, And they see this in their peer group, the same thing. They'll be using it in a peer group, and they see a whole bunch of people who are using it, and a lot of them are getting A's, and they seem to be fine. Uh, it doesn't play out that way for a lot of them. But I think Jeff has got a point uh, in that not everybody who has, uses the drugs has a desperately bad outcome. I use, again, the example of speeding. Uh, not everybody who speeds has a problem. Or drunk driving. The odds of having an accident uh, for a drunk driver are something one in 300. Uh, so what do you conclude? You shouldn't enforce that law? I don't think that's the conclusion I would reach. Do you want to I say, say very quickly, I, I agree with you. I think that by putting certain things in this category that says they're really a horrible, awful, we can't let you have any access to them at all, and other things being illegal, you make people think that this very broad brush, you know, there's bad things and there's okay things. If everything were legal, people would think more, they'd talk to their friends more, they would go to their doctors, they would go to websites, they would learn about the potential costs and benefits in a more consistent way and make, on average, a better set of choices. Yes, sir. This is the... Our distinguished guest, the former mayor of Baltimore, Kurt Schmoke. Dr. DuPont, I was just wondering, um, uh, one comment and then a question to you. Uh, on needle exchange, yeah. uh, when, when I was mayor, we instituted the needle exchange program, Baltimore first yeah. in the country, and it was demonstrated to uh, be effective. But remember, I, I just want you to note that it had nothing to do with reducing uh, drug use, it had to do with the AIDS problem. Right. No, I understand that. that and, and so, and, and everybody that studied our program said that it did reduce the right. spread of AIDS without increasing the use of, of, of drugs in our city. So I, I would just hope that in the future when you talk about the needle exchange that you would at least relate it uh, to the AIDS and not as a technique. We never said that it was a technique for reducing uh, uh, drug use. Um, but on, on your balanced approach, I was wondering, one, whether you think that the national policy is in, in balance right now, that there is a balance between uh, the resources going into the criminal justice side and those going into the treatment side. And secondly, would you have a problem with uh, making the penalties for smoking marijuana civil penalties rather than criminal penalties? Well, the, the, back to the uh, uh, needle exchange, you know, one of the ways that people uh, spread uh, HIV is through sexual behavior as, in addition, and uh, needle exchange does nothing about that, and the drug use uh, puts people at tremendously increased risk of spreading. My, my sense about the needle exchange and HIV is you've got two potentially fatal diseases, and you're, you're enabling one to prevent the other, and I think it's much better to try to stop both of them. 
because the uh, intravenous drug use is a potentially fatal disease. And uh, let's think about how we can do both and achieve that, that goal. Now, with respect to the current balance, uh, the, the, uh, there's more money spent now about uh, – uh, what, what are my numbers here? $6 billion, I think, for demand reduction uh, and something like $12 billion or $9 billion, I guess it is, for uh, supply reduction. And people say that's a that's an wrong balance. Uh, the fact is that this is, a, uh, I think, as much as has ever been spent on demand reduction, and this money is not in a pot to be divided. It's an entirely separate silo in the government of where, it's, uh, where it comes from to reduce the amount of money in law enforcement for drug law enforcement would not add money to the, the treatment budget. It's not as if it's a zero-sum game. It's only together in a, in a chart. It's not how those allocations are made. So I think that, that, to me, that's not a very helpful way to think about it. I think they are both there, and they are both important. Gil Kierlikowski has made very clear that the, the purpose of the federal policy is to reduce the demand. And his argument, and I agree with him, is that supply reduction is a demand reduction program. With respect to the marijuana penalties, uh, I, one of the things that interests me about the Swedish approach to, to, to drugs uh, in the criminal justice system is to have lower penalties in general, but to have them be more vigorously enforced. And I think that the, the new ideas in the criminal justice system are all based on that kind of experience. This hope probation, for example, which I was going to talk about, uh, has to do with brief incarceration instead of a long-term incarceration, for example. So I think there's a lot of ways to think about the use of the criminal penalties to achieve goals, including stopping drug use. Okay, I want to go to the back, the lady on the aisle, second row. Institute for Humane Studies. And I have a question for Dr. DuPont, which was, um, I was wondering if in your experience uh, treating people with drug addictions, if you found that people are dissuaded from seeking treatment because they fear the prosecution associated with the consumption of illegal drugs. And I was um, further wondering if the prohibition on drug use means that um, people don't have access to information about safe and responsible drug use that they might be getting through schools or other kinds of educational programs. Yeah, I, I don't think the schools do talk about safe drug use. It's a little bit to me like having a program for safe uh, speeding uh, for teenagers. Uh, that's a, a great idea because you know the teenagers are going to speed, and I think that's a message that doesn't have uh, much appeal uh, to me. But, but I also think that with respect to, to coming to treatment, I have never seen anybody discouraged from coming to treatment, not a single case because of being reported to the police. That doesn't happen. Uh, that never happens. Uh, the last thing the police want is the name of some drug abuser. Uh, they have more drug abusers that they can cope with, and, they, they, and it's a federal law that says you can't give treatment data. Uh, that was when, when I was in the White House. Uh, there was a federal law passed that drug treatment data is protected from law enforcement people, but it doesn't have to be. That is that. But the treatment people have no interest in turning it over to law enforcement, and I've never known anybody who thought they did. If they do think that, they're, they're entirely wrong. Yes, sir. Uh, the man in the white shirt in the back? Yes. Uh, hi. My, my question is for Dr. DuPont. Uh, Your name and affiliation? Uh, my name is Travis Hatch. I'm an intern with the ACLU. Um, and uh, I, I, I'm definitely in agreement uh, with the doctor that uh, the drug addiction can create um, 
the chemical slavery. Uh, but as far as with prevent, preventing the harms of, of the drug use itself um, through prohibition, um, I just I wonder if the doctor is familiar with uh, with the situation in Portugal and how in the 1990s it had uh, I believe the highest heroin usage no, rate in the European Union, um, and that has decreased substantially since the decriminalization in the country. And um, I, I'm, I'm curious if you're familiar with that. And if so, what your opinion is on it? Yes, the fact is that Portugal has always had a very, very low uh, rate of drug use uh, in the European Union, never had a high rate of drug use. The claim is that, that the decriminalization has been helpful in reduce drug use there. I think there's a serious question of whether that's true. And I think just stay tuned. You're going to get a lot more data about Portugal as it's become uh, a, a center of attention. And my reading and talking to the physicians who are in Portugal is that the drug problem has gotten worse, not better. But uh, I don't want to present that as anything other than anecdotal evidence from the people in Portugal. Uh, but I think you will see a lot more data about that because of that. And I, I think that's important to look at it. I want to look at Sweden. Sweden does have one of the lowest illegal drug use rates in, in the Europe and in the developing world. Uh, and they do it in a country that is uh, recognized as being extremely liberal uh, and, uh, and uh, uh, compassionate. Uh, that's the model I want people to look at, not uh, Portugal or Switzerland or Netherlands. Well, since Portugal came up, I should mention that Cato published uh, an important study on the decriminalization policy in Portugal. It's available outside at the registration table, and it basically studied uh, the comparison between drug use rates before they decriminalized and after they decriminalized, and, and what the effects of the policy have been in Portugal in comparison to drug usage rates in Portugal as compared to other European countries that continue to take the hardline approach, and, and Portugal comes out looking uh, very well in comparison, but uh, the, it's an ongoing debate, uh, and I just want to mention that the Cato study is outside and available for those who are interested. Uh, yes, this lady right here on the aisle. Hello, my name is Shelby Monday. Uh, my question is for Mr. Dupont. You said that 37% uh, of people in rehabilitation come from the criminal justice system, but when they get clean in rehabilitation, how many of them after the probation period actually end up back in rehabilitation because they go right back to the drugs? Uh, that, that's a problem. Most of them have, uh, after the rehabilitation, are still on probation and parole. And uh, take a look at the, the, the studies you'll see on our website from the Hope Probation in, in Hawaii. Uh, and what they found was that by uh, strictly monitoring the drug use for up to five years, uh, that uh, they had lower incarceration rates, uh, lower drug use rates, and lower uh, recidivism in crime by monitoring that for a long period of time. Well, there are five million people in the United States on probation and parole. Uh, and uh, those people have a very high uh, rate of recidivism and crime. And I think to develop some good ideas for dealing with that is really important uh, in terms of uh, uh, demand reduction and, and humanitarian concerns, including helping those people, because they're continuing to commit crimes is uh, not helpful to them. So uh, I'm very interested in, in those, uh, th those new ideas, and uh, I, I encourage you to take a look at it. Yes, sir. My name is Peter Gross. I'm a financial planner with um, the Strategic Financial Alliance. My question is for Dr. DuPont. Sorry. And my question is, Dr. DuPont, in the 
20s when they passed 18 well the, they passed the the 18th amendment they made at least 1920 they, to 1933 right they they saw that it was probably unconstitutional and passed the 18th amendment had enough courtesy to make an amendment to the constitution um you know do, when you talked you mentioned talked you know about the national policy and you actually you know more of a top down versus at the state levels or something local right. like Sweden, a smaller country, and um, so you, more of a top-down authoritarian approach to it, and actually alluded to maybe a collusion of authorities, uh, law enforcement throughout the world, yeah. and of a more top-down approach rather than bottoms up. So I wanted to know whether you, first of all, if you thought the, um, the drug laws were constitutional in the first place, and secondly, do you think a more top-down authoritarian approach is better than maybe localizing it? Well, let me just tell you about prohibition, because I'm not sure you're aware of this. The first state to prohibit alcohol was Maine in 1849. Uh, by, by 1918, when the 18th Amendment came through, 1919, when the 18th Amendment came through, uh, most of the states in the United States were dry, as they say. They were already prohibited. So the federal uh, response was following the states uh, rather than uh, the other way around. So it wasn't top-down, like you're saying, but it, it was there, absolutely. Uh, so uh, I, I'm all for uh, variation from, from states and learning from those, uh, from those experiments. So that doesn't bother me in the least. Did you want to say anything on that, Jeff? Okay. Last question down here. I, I'm Ruth Witt. My question is for um, Dr. DuPont. My information is that when the prohibition was passed, alcohol consumption went up. Women started drinking. They didn't drink before. They went to speakeasies, and we had flappers. Um, it, it seems it, it seems counterintuitive if you make it illegal that people will, will use more of it, but that's what happened in the prohibition. Okay, the reality is that alcohol use in this country went down, and everybody agrees with that. There's no debate about it. There's a big debate about how much it went down. That, that is very uh, significant about it, but it definitely uh, went down in prohibition. You know, the thing that I think is very interesting is the idea that prohibition caused organized crime in the United States, and that repeal of prohibition had an effect, a, a, a negative effect on, on organized crime. Uh, the 1930s were probably distinguished in this country as the major uh, decade for organized crime in the country, even though they weren't selling any alcohol. And I think that for those people who think that, uh, for example, in Mexico, that you'd get rid of the organized crime there by legalizing drugs in the United States, uh, I don't think so uh, about that, that that would be the case. But in any event, in prohibition, alcohol did go down, not, not up, including uh, admissions to state mental hospitals for alcohol problems, uh, cirrhosis of the liver rates went down during uh, prohibition. It definitely had a public health effect. Again, there's a debate about how much, but there was an effect. Okay, Jeff, you wanted to say something on that. Yeah, just on that point, I think we found one thing that Dr. DuPont and I agree on. Uh, the evidence on alcohol prohibition is that it probably reduced consumption somewhat. My estimates are roughly 20% based on looking at things like cirrhosis death rates and similar measures of adverse effects related to alcohol. It's very hard to get good data and know how to interpret the data because, of course, we don't have normal statistics on alcohol consumption when it's an illegal good. There's a really huge complicating factor that there was this thing called the Spanish influenza, which killed 50 million people 
1918, it probably killed a lot of the people who would have otherwise been around to die from cirrhosis in the 1920s and early 30s. So apportioning it all is very messy. But all the indications are that it went down, but not very much. So that brings us back to my sort of overall point. We can probably achieve some reductions in drug use through prohibition, but only at a huge cost. If we balance the cost and the benefit of prohibition, prohibition is a bad policy. Okay, I'm afraid we've run out of time, but everybody here is invited to the reception we're going to be having upstairs. Please thank both of our speakers. Thank you.